First this morning, I want to lift up a fellow pastor, and uh, this morning, not one in another church, but one in this part of this people. I want to pray for Scott Sutton, and just uh, enjoying that he is away this weekend, spending time with his family. Lord, I pray that he and Lindsay are enjoying their kids and enjoying some rest. Um, I want to pray for Scott specifically, knowing that he is coming into his uh, second sabbatical this year, um, knowing also that he is shouldering some new responsibilities with seminary. Lord, I just want to pray for his worship first and foremost, that you would keep him close to you, that you would guard him from the wiles and the ways of the evil one, that you would keep him um, close to you, that you would grow him through this time of stretch and strain uh, so that he needs you more, is more useful to you, uh, more attentive to you, uh, that he is wiser, that he's more mature as a result of the time that he spends at seminary and juggling a pastorate and a husband, a role as a husband and a father. I'm just thankful for my brother, Scott, thankful for one of my closest friends and a teammate for 10 years here. Uh, just um, you are good and gracious to bless us with Scott Sutton and his family. Uh, we are thankful. Uh, also, this Lord, uh, Lord, this morning, I want to pray for Derek and Casey uh, as they prepare for Amelia's surgery on Tuesday. Uh, I pray for mom and dad um, for their worship. I pray that they are just enjoying and trusting you right now as Derek is home with Amelia today and um, other family members are here and they're gathering, sort of preparing for this time. Lord, this family and this church family entrust this little tiny girl to you. And we're so thankful that she is in your hands and so thankful that you are attentive and involved, that you're not transcendent, so transcendent that you're aloof and disengaged. Thankful that you care. Uh, we approach your throne this morning boldly with that um, gratitude and that joy, knowing that little Amelia is in your great hands. Um, Lord, this morning also, uh, just in regards to how we spend the next few minutes, I pray for an attentiveness that's beyond um, anything that any person could muster or any person could generate in being interesting. Uh, I pray that um, folks, folks that maybe were dragged here and are thinking what a drag it's going to be to sit and listen for an hour. Um, or maybe they're hearing for the first time that this will be an hour. Um, Lord, I pray for those folks that I just pray that you will, that the Holy Spirit will speak to those hearts um, and surprise them. And um, we're thankful that you are always at work, and I pray that you will be at work in these next few minutes. Uh, we entrust this time to you, and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me welcome folks that are here for the first time or first of a few times or first time in a long time. See some folks that we haven't seen in a long time because they've moved and uh, maybe visiting this weekend. And it's a treat to be here with you all this morning. If you're here for the first time or first of a few times, we want you to know that you're welcome. Uh, one, of the, one of the, I'll tell you something about this church. It's a bunch of folks that are really, I believe, involved in each other's lives in meaningful ways. And that's a pretty cool thing, but sometimes that can be hard to penetrate and we want to, to be close as a church, but we don't want to be impenetrable. We don't want to be sort of cliquish and we're so close that we're not attentive to folks that may be here for the first time or first, first of a few times or someone who's considering being part of this church. So that's really a twofold statement. For those who are visiting, try and make yourself known. 
try and introduce yourself to someone. And then for those who are part of this church family, try and get to know some of those folks that are maybe unfamiliar to you. Um, it's, uh, someone reminded me this week, and it was a reminder I needed to hear, that a lot of times folks that visit your church uh, are coming because they're hurting for some reason. And um, that's something we need to be reminded of, that uh, not everybody, not every visitor is in a place where they're hurting, but some are, and maybe a lot are, for one reason or another, and we can be medicine and salve and gentle and loving and caring to those folks. So keep that in mind as you meet maybe a visitor this morning. Uh, let me give you kind of a plan for these next few weeks. I thought maybe kind of a bird's eye view of what we're doing the next few weeks might be helpful for you. This morning, we are doing a sermon that uh, I've, I've titled, Did You See That? And I'll explain why I gave it that title here in a minute. But we're going to go back and look at something that we looked at last week. Next week will be Membership Renewal Sunday. If you've been visiting Crosspoint or if you're a visitor this morning, you're like, I'm not ready for that. You're not going to be pushed into anything. Really, if anything, it would be a chance for you to have a front row seat to what is this church about? What do we view as important when it comes to membership? And those of us that are members, that as the Lord leads, will recommit our membership this next Sunday. It'll be sort of a sermonette to kind of prepare you. And uh, some of y'all are like, yeah, man, I don't, that'd be cool. Uh, sermonette, and then we're going to have dinner on the grounds. Okay, so it'll be a, a good time. And hopefully winter will be officially dead by then. We are, somebody sent me a picture of a snowman that was laying on his back with a bunch of knives stuck in his chest and said, die, winter, die. And I was like, yeah, that's the way I feel this morning, man. Like, what in the world? So hopefully next week it'll be nice and, and springish and uh, we can enjoy a good, good time having dinner together and recommitting our journey together. And then the next Sunday after that, we're going to spend the entire morning in the entirety of chapter 9 of, of Hebrews. We're going to cover the entire chapter in one morning, looking at more things that are better. And I'm going to give you a kind of a sense of what we're doing this morning and how that fits in. And then we have um, actually a Sunday where Derek Thornton's going to be preaching. Uh, it'll be the Sunday before Easter. And then Easter Sunday and the Sunday after that, we'll be finishing up Hebrews chapter 10 which is just crazy that we've covered five chapters in like three months. So it's going to be pretty cool. And let me tell you something. The investment that you're making now, for those of you who have been here these last few months, the last couple of months as we've, we've launched off into this high priesthood series, a better priest, the investment you're making now I think is going to really pay off in these last two sermons on Easter morning and the morning after. Because the Hebrews preacher, he, he exposes really potent, important truth, truth, and then he applies it. And then when he applies it, it's, it's unbelievable. It's exhortation. It's exposition and then exhortation. And that Easter morning and the Sunday after are going to be exhortation. So the investment you're making now, if the last few weeks and this morning you're like, man... I just kind of feel like I'm learning new things about Jesus, and this is pretty awesome, but I'm not really sure how this is going to play out. Man, those, that Easter morning and that Sunday after that, you're going to see it how, it, how at least the Hebrews preacher and how God through the Hebrews preacher says it plays out. So it's really, really cool the next few weeks. So that's a bird's eye view. Now this morning, we are, um, the last few weeks, we, we, we started a better high priest series. I mentioned that a moment ago. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at that, that Christ is part of a better order. He's the order of Melchizedek. And then in Christ, we have a better hope. That's what we looked at a couple weeks ago. Last Sunday, we looked at a better ministry and a better covenant. 
And it's the covenant part that I really felt like, and I, I talked with the other elders about this as well. I wanted another set of eyes on this. I felt like it's worth us stopping down this Sunday and just sort of together saying, did you see that? I had a couple of stupid did you see it stories, did you see that stories, and I'm just going to tell one of those stupid stories. The other one has to do with being eight years old in New Orleans, and you can ask me about that, did you see that story, and I'll tell you about that later. But this one is just, uh, Jerry and I, Jerry Morris and I ride bikes together, uh, bicycles, not motorcycles. We were riding our bicycle together on a road that runs sort of parallel to I-30. We were coming in from Campbell area, we're coming in through the access road, on 30, and then we take this sort of parallel road that has some houses on it, and, and you're sort of finishing up your ride. You know, we come kind of cruising back into Greenville, and um, when you spend 30, 40 miles on the road on a ride, which you can do on a, on a given ride, you see all kind of crazy stuff on the road. I mean, all kind of crazy roadkill, stuff like that. You're right here. I mean, there's no windshield. You're not going 70. You're going like 18, 19, 20 miles an hour, and you just see some crazy stuff. And we're coming into town, and I look down, and in the other lane, Jerry was on this side, and on the other lane, there is a chicken smashed into the road. Now, that's not unusual to see a smashed chicken, all right? When you're driving rural roads, you might see a smashed chicken here and there. But this smashed chicken was unique. He had no feathers, no head, no wings, no legs. It was like you would buy at the grocery store. Well, that's not even unusual in and of itself. You might figure somebody, you know, might have a mishap on the way home and their groceries, you know, their bags fly out of their moped or something and they they drop their, their chicken. That can happen. But there's no wrapper anywhere. There's no debris indicating that anybody lost any groceries. There's just a random, plucked, ready-to-cook, smashed chicken in the road. We passed this thing, and I bet we went another three or four minutes. And the whole time I'm thinking, I've never seen that before. And I said, Jerry, did you see that? And I can't remember what he said, but anyway, we decided to go back and turn around and look at it. So we went back, just envisioned two guys in tight bike shorts, looking like goobers, standing around looking at a smashed chicken in the road. And the sad thing is we left without taking a picture. And I told Jerry that day, I said, man, I cannot believe we didn't take a picture of that chicken. And I said, the next time I ever see a smashed, plucked chicken in the road, I'm going to take a picture. That will never happen again. <laughs> Knock his feathers off. It's like a cartoon, you know, like a Wally Coyote cartoon. Poof, his feathers are gone. All right, so that's the stupidest uh, like introduction to a sermon that I've ever made. I had the worst illustration last week, and we're going to bring it up again this week. This week, we are going to say, not a smashed chicken in the road, we're going to say about something, we're going to go back and take a really good look. Did you see that? At one of the most profound things in our Bibles that we are walking in and enjoying right now that we may not even realize we're enjoying, and that's the new covenant. So turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Our focus passage this week is going to be really, um, our introductory passage, I should say, is going to be, I'll say it's going to be our focus passage as well, was our focus passage last week, but really in sort of a smaller section. 
the section having to do specifically with the new covenant. In Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12, specifically this morning. So as you're turning there, I want to remind you of what a covenant is. Some of you who weren't here last week, or some of you who were and may have forgotten already, a covenant's not the kind of thing that we talk about very often. A marriage covenant would be something that would be maybe familiar to you. A definition of a covenant, this is uh, from Doug Wilson, a solemn bond sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. And those blessings and curses have to do with uh, how you follow through or don't follow through on the covenant. Okay, A solemn bond sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. Now Hebrews chapter 8 beginning in verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. Um, Daniel, would you go get me a cup of water? Thank you, laddie. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This passage is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. Last week we considered for a few minutes, now let me me tell you this too. Home base today is is Hebrews chapter 8, so keep your finger or your bookmark there in in Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to have you look at four, five, maybe six places other than that over the course of the morning. The first place I want you to look is Jeremiah chapter 7, but keep your finger in Hebrews 8. We considered last week that this is a quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. There's some interesting things to consider in Jeremiah. The context, the book of Jeremiah was written about 600 years or so before Christ. Jeremiah had to do with the final days going into the exile and really was dealing with why the nation of Israel, specifically Judah, is going into exile into Babylon. It's a tragic book. You know, think about Jeremiah. You may have heard of Jeremiah called The Weeping Prophet. This is a sad, sad book. It really deals with the heartbreak of how things went with the old covenant and how this people adhered or or did not adhere to their uh, old covenant responsibilities. Okay? So Jeremiah chapter 7 is a passage that nicely summarizes what's going on um, in the Old Covenant at this point. Daniel, you come straight up here. I'm so parsed. I don't know why. I drank water this morning, but for some reason, I'm thirsty. Thank you, lad. Appreciate it. I hope you can't hear me swallowing the microphone. You probably can. Jeremiah chapter 7, <clears throat> beginning in verse 23. But this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people 
and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. That sounds like my definition of, Doug Wilson's definition of covenant. A solemn bond, sovereignly administered, or solemnly overseen with attendant blessings and curses. And you can hear the attendant blessing and curses in there. The blessings will be that, I, that, I will, that it may be well with you. You hear that in there. This Jeremiah chapter 7 passage, uh, verse 23, was written about 900 years after this covenant was made. Here's how it went down when the covenant was made. Over in, uh, I don't want you to turn there, or you can if you want to. I'm not going to keep you from it. Exodus 24, but I'm already there. Moses came and told the people all the words that the, of, of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. So God says, okay, here's the covenant. He passes the covenant to the people through Moses, and the people respond, yes, we're in. Man, I love it. We're all we're on board. Later on in this passage, there's a sacrifice made, and Moses took half the blood, put it in basins, half the blood he threw on the altar. Then he took the blood of the covenant, or the book of the covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Okay, that's 900 years before Jeremiah's commentary over here in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah summarizes that sort of relationship. Here's, here's what I want you to do. And the people say, yeah, yes, we are in. And let's see in verse 24 how that goes or how that went over that 900 years. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 24. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts, and they went backward, not forward. There's a passage that, that, that I've considered for some time as really a sad picture of the condition of Israel. I want to read this passage to you and share this little story with you because it's, it's, in some ways it's a real story, but in some ways it's a metaphor of what Israel has done. Numbers chapter 25. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab these invited the people to the, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to the Baal of Peor. And their anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. Hear the curses? Hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor by taking foreign women. Now listen what has, happens next. I wish that were just the, the end of the story. Listen to what happens next. It's a metaphor of what Israel has done. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel, while they're weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. Just envision this dude prancing into town. He's got his Midianite woman. He's like, hey, check me out. I know you guys are all sad and repentant and remorseful and all, and I know there's some death and destruction going on as a result of all this, but I found me a woman and I found true love, and here she is, mom and dad. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, 
He rose and left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. He made like a little shin, uh, a sin kebab with this man and his, his gal, his Midianite gal. It's a heartbreaking story. When you look at it, you're like, man, that's a picture of the nation and the, con- uh, the nation of Israel, the condition of Israel. And then you read Jeremiah and you go, man, sure enough, things had not gone well. In fact, they had gone backwards rather than forwards. They walked in their own councils in the stubbornness of their own hearts. That's the context for Jeremiah 31. This really, really sad book that's full of really sad things as a consequence or the curses of their failure to follow through on their part of the covenant. In chapter 31, there's some seriously good news. In chapter 31, there's some amazing news. It's that news that the Hebrews preacher shares over here in Hebrews chapter 8. That's great news of a new covenant where God is going to instigate a new covenant. He's going to initiate a new covenant. And here's the shocking good news. He's going to make a new worshiper. He's going to make a new kind of worshiper. Now, the Hebrews preacher, I want to go ahead and turn back to um, yeah, Hebrews chapter 8. And put your finger in, if you want to have this ready, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36. I'll give you a second to turn back to Hebrews chapter 8. The Hebrews preacher is encouraging a church made of people just like you and me. Maybe a couple of them were dating. Maybe some of them were going to prep school, planning on going on some further education. Maybe some of them had just started having kids and they're trying to figure out how in the world do we raise a bunch of little disobedient rascals. Maybe some of them had teenage kids and they got that thousand-yard stare and they're like, oh, man, I had no idea when they were like four years old. I thought it was bad then. People that maybe are dealing with job loss, maybe you're dealing with a bad report from the physician. I don't know what their doctors were like in that day. They surely had somebody who's going to give them some sort of report on how you're feeling, some version of that. Maybe they're dealing with those sort of very real issues, but on top of those sort of very real human issues like we all deal with, they're also dealing with persecution issues in their context. Like their family members might lose everything for following Christ. They might become human torches in someone's garden. They might lose everything they own. Or worse, this, well, it's hard to say that's worse. It's worse in a different way. Maybe your family disowns you if you follow Christ, your Jewish family. They disown you, and you no longer exist to them. You are like nothing to them, which is worse than them being mad at you. Those are the sorts of things this people is dealing with on top of just the daily human issues of life. And this is the good news that this Hebrews preacher is sharing with them, good news of a new covenant. It's beautiful to me because it's the sort of thing that I cannot tell you how often I'm sitting with someone in a counseling session and I'm starting to talk about, or just a random, hey, let's get together and talk about stuff. And I start talking about something that God showed us in a sermon and they're like, you know, 
I, kind of, I appreciate all that, but I don't really see how that connects to my issues. Can you imagine the thousand-yard stare that the Hebrews preacher must have gotten from some folks as they're just overwhelmed with the difficulties of life, overwhelmed with persecution, and he starts talking to them about a better high priest? And they're like, huh? That's not helping me with Rome. It's not helping me with what the governor wants to do to me or the emperor or the local officials. That's not helping me with what with my in-laws. <laughs> That doesn't give me anything. Man, here's the good news. He's doing the work here, and hopefully we've been doing the work the last few weeks. We're doing it this morning and going to do it the next few weeks of figuring out how that connects to our daily issues. Not a lot of us have those persecution sort of issues, although you might. You could. Your family could disown you if you follow Christ. Some of you are the only believers in your family, and I can imagine what life must be like for you. So this isn't altogether foreign. But realize this medicine that he's giving them about Christ as high priest and about this good news of a new covenant being promised to the nation of Israel about 600 years before Christ, about 900 years after they said, hey, we're all in, and for 900 years proved otherwise, how this is the, most, the best news you will hear your entire life. Not just today, your entire life. This new covenant is the goods. I mean, it's the premium goods is what he's given this people. What an exciting privilege we have this morning to consider it ourselves. Let's go back and look at Hebrews chapter 8 and just sort of grab the highlights of that new covenant. I want to have those three things in front of us. We're going to take a closer look at uh, a color, or at least this passage and the covenant. We're going to have sort of a did you see that morning where we really consider and really massage some of these deep and rich truths but let's first grab what they are beginning in chapter 8 um, verse 8 I know I've read it or I think I've read it and whether I've read it or not I, I saturate myself with it so we're going to read it again he finds fault with them when he says now we already established that he found fault because they broke covenant he finds fault with them in Jeremiah. He's, he's, he's basically quoting Jeremiah 31. He finds fault with them. He's talking about the old covenant worshiper. He finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. That's some seriously good news. It's not going to be like that covenant. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after, these, after those days, declares the Lord. The first thing, the first really beautiful, wonderful thing that we can get our hands around in this new covenant. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What a wonderful reality. Initially, he wrote the law on tablets of stone, and now he's saying, I'm now going to put it in their minds and write the law on their hearts. But first, we have to change the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. If you remember this passage last week, I told you to turn over to Ezekiel 36. I'm going to share a passage from Ezekiel 11, and then we'll look together at 36. They say in some ways the same thing, but hearing it said twice is really kind of cool. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh 
and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and actually keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Here's the Ezekiel 36 passage, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Essentially what happens in this first truth, this first reality of the new covenant where he puts the law on the mind and writes it on the heart from these other passages that we see in Ezekiel, we see that he is giving the new covenant worshiper a new heart first. And he is moving the Holy Spirit into the heart and the life of the believer. He's no longer traveling with the nation of Israel. He is now traveling in God's people. In you personally, in us as a people. You have a new heart, you have indwelling Holy Spirit, and now the shocker that just blows my mind. We actually have the ability to obey. We have the ability to obey. Just for a minute, take a look at that and say, did you see that? Are you hearing that? That now, this side of Christ, you have the ability to obey. The old covenant worshiper did not. They did not. And they proved it or and or for 900 years and then another 600 years till Christ showed up. Man, that is a seriously good truth of this new covenant. The second beautiful thing from the new covenant comes from the next passage. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. We're going to spend some extra time on this this morning. But let me just tell you, this what this is, has to do with is access by all members of the covenant family to God. Nobody's standing outside the tent in this new covenant. Nobody's standing outside the tabernacle. Nobody's standing in the outer court saying, man, I sure wish I could get in there and spend some time with Yahweh in this new covenant. All members know him from the least to the greatest. And the third really wonderful truth from this passage is in the next verse, verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Forgiveness of sins, once and for all time, final, forevermore, through the finished work of Christ. Man, this new covenant is shocking good news. This new covenant that Jeremiah promised the nation of Israel some 600 years before Christ came is the new covenant that we walk in. That's the good news that this Hebrews preacher, the medicine that he's giving a bunch of hurting people. We walk in a very privileged time in a new covenant. I used the illustration last week at the beginning of the Lord's Supper. It's probably my 
best worst illustration. I feel like it's my best, although it's the worst, cheesiest illustration in the history of Crosspoint of Robocop. If you were here last week, you remember the story, but I'll, if you weren't, I'll kind of catch you up on it. An ordinary policeman who virtually dies, he's in an explosion, he virtually dies and is made into a new super policeman. He's not invincible. He's still human. If you saw the movie, you're like, ah, that's debatable. But he's oh so much more capable. He's so much more able. Well, the good news from this new covenant is that what God did in this new covenant spiritually is what they did with this policeman in the lab. God, through the new covenant, has made us super worshipers. He has made us so much more capable than old Jacob. Remember Jacob, our old friend Jacob, we've been walking with for like eight years. We started a sacrifice series seven or eight years ago as a church and met this fictional, or fictitious, fictional, that's a good word, fictitious dude that we called Jacob. Just an imaginary Jewish guy that wants to obey the law, wants to be with God, wants to have his sins paid for. And we just even considered the last couple, couple, last couple weeks in contrast where homeboy's got his shoes worn out. He's got a tiny little wee flock because he's spent them all. He sacrificed them all. And his shoes are worn out. This dude is tuckered. Man, this worshiper, this new covenant worshiper is so much more capable than Jacob. Part of the reason that I felt like we needed to have a, a Sunday where we stopped down and part of the, I think, a big reason why Brad and Scott said, yeah, man, let's do it. Scott had the best illustration. This was a good illustration. He's a better illustrator than me. He, uh, he said, we were talking in my study uh, on Monday. I said, man, can you believe some of these things that are coming out of this, this passage, this new covenant reality? And he said, yeah, man. He said, I feel like I had a BB gun. And God said, give me that BB gun. And he gave me a forty-five. Now, for those of you who don't know anything about guns, you're like, I have no clue what that is. But that'd be like somebody using a sports illustration when I'm in the sanctuary. I have no clue what you're talking about. <laughs> so there you go. You can talk to your, your husband or your wife, whoever it might be, that actually knows something about guns. Yaakov had a BB gun. But, man, we've got a 45. Now, there are three things I want us to consider this morning in this new covenant. Three things from this passage uh, in some ways, there are additional things. In, in, one, in some way, one of these things we're just going to consider a little closer. We're going to say, did you see that together this morning? The first thing, the first of three, and I'm going to end each of, these things with, uh, each of these three things with some questions. I want to just almost like come and sit beside you and turn to you and say, okay, what are you going to do with this? Or what do you think of this? Okay, so I'm going to end it with some questions. I want them to be very personal in the way you receive them. But let's consider what they are first. Here's the first one. God has the initiative in this new covenant. Now, he had the initiative in the old. Okay? It's nothing different in terms of him having the initiative. But something I want us to spend a few minutes considering and looking at and just enjoying together is that God has the initiative in this new covenant through and through. Look at the passage again. We're sort of saturating ourselves with the passage. Let's begin in verse 10, about halfway through verse 10. I want you to notice every time you see the words, I will, 
are every time the words I will are implied. There are eight of them that I found, and I may have missed one or two. Listen to it. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's an implied I will. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God in this new covenant. They shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and and I will remember their sins no more. I missed a couple back in verse 8 and then in verse 10. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. And then in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, I found eight. You might find some more. There are some in there where he's talking about what I did. But now he's talking about here's what I'm going to do. I will. This passage is saturated with I wills. Now, the reason I want us to spend a few minutes on this. There's this weird thing in contemporary, it, it may be in old Christianity too, but I know it's in contemporary Christianity, that sort of presents this faith and relationship with God as almost like courting. You might hear guys use the language from time to time of, God is madly in love with you. That makes me want to shower, honestly. Or I would fall in love with God. You know, it's sort of... Language like it's sort of a courtship, like boy meets girl. That's, that's a courtship. Boy meets girl, boy shows off for girl. Girl gets impressed, and she's, she falls for boy. And some enchanted evening is playing in the background, and they go off and they get married and then live life happily after, ever after. The fact is the relationship with our God is not like a courtship. The relationship with our God is that we are enemies of God. You need to understand that. Apart from some change taking place in us, we are enemies of God. Romans 3 says no one seeks for God. No one. Not even one. There's an emphasis. (laughs) Not even one. Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. Man, what a crazy scandal. He's going to take enemies, and he's not only going to make them alive, but he's, the next verse says that he's going to seat them with the victor, with Christ. Seating us in heavenly places. The thing I want you to see here is that God is the Savior. We don't even have, we are enemies of his. We don't have the ability to even seek him out. He, no one seeks for God, not even one. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ because he's the Savior, front to back, through and through, left to right. By grace you've been saved through faith, and even your faith is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Man, I want us to spend a few minutes just enjoying that he has the initiative in this covenant. 1 John 4.19 says, We love God because he first loved us. Now you can read that a couple different ways. We can read that as sort of reciprocal. God loved me, so I'm going to love him back. He's going to show off for me, and I'm going to fall in love, that sort of courtship sort of language. What I want you to see in that passage is we were unable to love God except that he loved us first. That's the reality of the gospel. All the I wills in there 
are words that have to do with what he's doing. This new covenant is saturated with things that he says, I will do. I used to have a view of salvation that goes like this, that I'm sort of in the ocean. In fact, I've shared this illustration in that pulpit over there, or from that pulpit, or from that podium in our old sanctuary years ago, early on in John. And I had to confess later that it was not an accurate biblical view. A view of a dude swimming in the ocean. And he's out there, and he's like, man, the waves are crashing around, and he's barely keeping your head up. You know, you're kind of trying to do, I can't remember what all those kicks are, you know, egg beater kick, and you're trying to keep your head up and trying to, you know, survive. And, you know, this boat comes along, and then Jesus throws you this life buoy. And you're like, yes, you grab the life buoy, and Jesus pulls you to salvation. A sort of a partnership. I had this sort of a view of it being a partnership. And what I realized through preaching through the rest of the book of John and through lots of other passages and a passage like this that's full of I wills, I see that in reality, I'm laying on the bottom of the ocean. I'm not at the top of the water fighting for air. I'm laying on the bottom of the ocean. I need to be literally resuscitated. I need to be dragged from the bottom. Jesus goes in the water and he does like that man from Atlantis kick. You know, that uh, dolphin kick. And he's down there. He swoops me up. He comes out of the water, into the air, into the boat, revives me. He does the saving through and through. This passage is saturated with I wills because he's the one that does it. Through and through. Man, I love this new covenant. And I love what's going on here. God God has the initiative. He's the one doing the work. I want to ask you a question as I'm turning to a couple of passages. Does this make you uncomfortable to think about a God that does all the work? Something about the contemporary mind or the contemporary view that says, ah, you know, I, I kind of want to, want to have some agency in here. I want to have a, a say-so. and I don't like the thought. I feel like we start asking questions. Does this mean I'm a robot? Now, my illustration about RoboCop is not connected to that at all. Forget that illustration when I'm using that silly comment. That is a silly question. Of course we're not robots. Of course we're not automatons. We are enemies. If you want to understand what we are apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. The nation of Israel proved it o'er and o'er. Unable to even obey him. We're going to do everything you said we ought to do. And then hours later, they're dancing around the fire like a bunch of hooligans worshiping a golden calf. One example after another where they prove we are enemies of God. But God drags us off the bottom of the ocean, resuscitates us, gives us a new heart, brings us to life. He gives us the ability to love him. If this makes you uncomfortable, seeing a God that's so involved, then you're going to have to go look for a different God. Because thankfully our God is that involved. Now, what does this have to do with a passage full of I wills? This has really some cool encouraging things because what it means for us when a passage says I will I will I will I will eight different times I will establish I will make I will put I will write I will be I will be merciful I will not remember their sins when a passage is saturated that with things like that we can be sure that this God is going to see these things through because the initiative is his Listen to this passage, Psalm 135. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven 
and on earth, in all the seas and all the deeps. Let's not leave anything out. That's the definition of sovereignty, people. If you don't like a God that's absolutely sovereign, you need to go find a different God because this is our God right here. And he is absolutely sovereign in the work of salvation. Job 42, 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So as I'm hearing a passage full of I wills that have to do with my eternal destiny and my condition, I'm encouraged that I serve a God that will not be thwarted. Yes, it's his initiative, this new covenant. Can you enjoy that with me for a minute? Man, if this covenant had anything to do with me initiating it, it would be lost from the outset. I want to ask you, do you see him as as author of your faith, and do you enjoy that? Where do you place your assurance is a good question. Somebody asked me where I place my assurance. It's not how I did yesterday or how I'm doing right now as a Christian. No, ma'am, no, sir. I place my assurance on the promises that he has made and the fact that he will not be thwarted. That is some seriously good news. This passage is full of I wills, and he will see these things through. Do you see him as author of your faith? You should. Hebrews 12 says to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Where is your assurance? Is your assurance in your performance or in your faith? Do you put faith in your faith? That's a roller coaster. You want to level it out? Put faith in a God that won't be thwarted. Put a faith in God that said, here's a new covenant I'm giving this people, and it's full of I wills. Man, that's some seriously good news right there. The second thing that I wanted us to consider this morning is having to do with this covenant is that all know him in this new covenant from least to greatest. All know him from least to greatest. Look at chapter 8, verse 11. Let's just see it again. They shall not teach each one his own neighbor or each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Turn to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. I'm going to share a few passages with you that are really shocking if you really consider them. Shocking. I'm so thankful that we turned around in the road and saying, did you see that this morning? Because this is worth taking another look at. My goodness, it's beautiful. See, in the Old Covenant, there were priests, and these priests are the ones who knew God and were known by God. That was the relationship in the Old Covenant. That's the way it was for the nation of Israel. The priests are the ones that knew God and were known by God. They conveyed and communicated then the knowledge of the Lord to the people. That was one of their responsibilities. They communicated the knowledge of the Lord to the people. According to Numbers chapter 3, the Levites had a very special relationship with God. In in Numbers chapter 3, it says, The Levites shall be mine. The Levites were the ones who were making sacrifice to the Lord. They were the ones who served in his presence. Then there were the rest of the folk. 
Listen to how the rest of the folk are characterized. You stay in Numbers chapter 16. It's the last one that I want to look at. Listen to these four passages. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Keep your eye on the football of the outsider. Just keep your eye on the football. You may have a thought in your head about who this is. So kind of entertain that. Think about that for a little bit. Listen to this passage. Numbers chapter 3, verse 10. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Now look at verse 30, or listen to verse 38. Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tent of meeting toward the sunrise, were Moses and Aaron and his sons, guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was to be put to death. Now let's figure out who this outsider is. Look at Numbers chapter 16. This is on the tail end of Korah's rebellion, like the showdown at the OK Corral, one of the coolest chapters in my Bible. My goodness, what a great story. Korah gets swallowed up by the earth. Korah's like, man, I don't see the distinction between one people and everybody else. See, Korah wanted something unusual. He wanted what we have right now. But it was premature. It wasn't God's time yet. And he rebelled against God's leadership. Listen to verse, beginning in verse 39. So Eliezer the priest took the bronze censers which those were burned, which which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be a reminder to the people of Israel, so that no outsider, who is not of the descendants of Aaron, should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company, as the Lord said to him through Moses. If you've been watching the football, you're paying attention to who the outsider is, your first thought may have been, well, maybe that's a, a Philistine, or maybe it's a Malachite, or a Hittite, or a Jebusite, or some Canaanite of some sort. But then you look at it really, really close, you go, oh, no, no, uh-oh, wait a minute. The outsider is anybody who's not a Levite. NASB calls them the layman. NASB sort of distinguishes between them and maybe somebody that's not part of Israel. Laman might help you kind of make sense of what's going on here. We're talking about Israelites that weren't Levites. And this passage is calling them outsiders. The original Hebrew actually sort of uses the language that's used for fringe and border. If you're not the Levites, you're on the fringes, you're on the border, you're on the edges. You're on the outside. The priests were a distinct class and were the only ones who could approach God. And the layman did not have that kind of access. But the crazy news of Hebrews chapter 8, verse 11, this new covenant, is that they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Boom! Man, when you take a look at that, you're like, man, that's seriously cool. There are no laymen in the new covenant. There's nobody hanging out outside the, tip, the, the tent, the tabernacle. 
There's nobody sitting around outside listening to Aaron with his bell on in there going, I hope he, did. I hope he makes atonement for my sins in there. There's nobody in the outer court. Man, there is no separation. There are no laymen. There are only priests. All of us. From the least in the covenant community, community to the greatest in the covenant community. From the tiniest little wee lad or lass. I'm thinking of the Hicks's little girl, one of the most recent baptisms that we had. Tiny little wee Hicks girl. She's a priest. She's got access to God. She's not waiting outside the tent. She didn't have to wait on mom and dad to pray. She, like every single one of you that have been baptized into the covenant people, have access. Everybody knows him from the least to the greatest. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. You are priests. Don't use that term layman. Man, that's a dirty word. Let's not use it. There are no laymen in this new covenant. Amen? Man, let me ask you this. I told you I was going to end with some questions in each of these little sections. Do you take advantage of that access? When some of you ask me to pray about something for you, that's totally cool. In fact, Brad and Scott and I, I bet your small group shepherds have done the same, have encouraged you. If you have something that you need us to pray for you about, please share with us. Man, if you have something you need me to pray about, I will pray with you and for you. But don't not pray then. Don't look to me like I'm the one that has access. Because <laughs> if you're part of the covenant people too, you have access as well. So ask people to pray. But I ask the question, do you take advantage of the access that you now have from the least to the greatest? Do you enter the throne room in prayer? Do you marvel together at the access that we have to God? Do you realize the privileged time that we are in as worshipers in the new covenant? Worshipers in the new covenant. The third thing. The third thing this morning has to do with a distinct change in two things. One was a word that I made up. All right, so just, just kind of get ready. And the other one is a real word. A distinct change in two things that are related. Adherability, that's not a word. So somebody says, hey man, you made up a word. I did, and I'm owning it. And capability. In this new covenant, there's been a tremendous change in adherability and you could say adhesiveness to the covenant and in capability. Let's talk about adherability first. Go back to Numbers chapter 8. I want you to have it right in front of you. I want you to see this. So cool. So cool. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Okay, you've heard that about ten times this morning, but grab it. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Jacob, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's not going to be like that covenant. It's going to be a new covenant. It's not like the one that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
for they did not continue in my covenant. The covenant that I'm going to initiate is going to be different in that, from that covenant in that that covenant they did not continue in. This one they will. Man, what a crazy, beautiful contrast. Adherability and adhesiveness in this covenant is starkly different. It adds new meaning to me to familiar passages like John chapter 10. Listen to this passage. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Hear it. No one will draw them out of covenant with me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There is a stark change, a stark contrast in this covenant from the old in its stickiness. In its adherability. Doug Wilson had a quote. He said, or a little illustration. He said, it's a bad illustration in terms of numbers. But it's a good illustration. He wasn't saying it. I'm saying it. it was a good illustration in terms of big picture. If 5% of old covenant worshipers adhered to the covenant, you might think about Eleazar or Phineas. Phineas was the one that actually made the sin kebab. Eleazar's son was Phineas, you know, the, the, the dude and his Midianite gal are prancing through the camp. You know, here's my gal. He's going to show her to meet mom and dad. And then that night, Phineas, you know, makes the sin kebab. You might see Phineas as like one of the 5% that adhere to the covenant. Moses would be an old man. These guys, they adhere to the covenant. If 5% adhered, 95% didn't. Okay. Just, and he says these numbers are not accurate. They're just giving you a general sense. If in the old covenant 5% adhered, 95% didn't. What God has done in the new covenant, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, that we're walking in right now, is that 5% that adhere, he's now made 95%. 95% adhere and 5% are apostates. And you know the story. You, I mean, we've looked at it. We've looked at apostasy recently. They went out from us for they were never really of us. That little percentage, though, will be small in contrast to the old covenant. We're walking in a very different age. The adherability, the stickiness of this covenant, man, it's like um, flypaper. But in it, like a good version of flypaper. Like flypaper is nasty because flies are nasty. But we're like, imagine like a good flypaper. He adheres us to the covenant. We're stuck. And nothing will snatch us out of his big, mighty hand. What a good, what good news in this covenant that we walk in. That had to do with adherability. This has to do with capability. Monday morning, I was visiting with a friend. Every Monday, or most Mondays, I meet with a friend and talk about shepherding stuff. Turn to Romans chapter 7. This is the last part of the message, so if you've hung in there, you're, we're, we're getting to, this is a, sort of the landing the plane. <clears throat> I meet with a friend on Mondays, and we talk about shepherding stuff. And my friend and I are listening to old sermons that have to do with shepherding your family. And we're talking about it. And 
um, my, my friend said something interesting. He said, you know, I'm looking at some of these things that I'm hearing in these sermons. This was the Dib series from years ago. I'm hearing these things in these sermons, and they're things that aren't new to me. They're things that I thought that I had years ago. But here I look in my life, they haven't played out years later. And he was a little discouraged. And, and listen to what I did. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't remember if I had him turn in his Bible, but I turned in my Bible because I don't have this passage memorized. To Romans chapter 7. Listen to this passage in Romans chapter 7. Here's why I had him turn. Imagine that you're him for a minute. You can likely connect to some area of your life where you're like, man, I really don't feel like I've grown in this area. Or I'm sort of disappointed that I thought I had that then, but yet I'm looking at my life now and it hasn't really found purchase, hasn't really shown up. So personalize sort of that, it wasn't anguish, that's a, that's a stronger word, but sort of that disappointment. Feel that for a minute. And imagine me sitting with you and encouraging you with these words from Romans chapter 7. Paul writes to the church at Rome, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, let me just put a little pen in that right there. At this point, when I'm talking to my friend... I've just read that last phrase, and I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> hey, what, it, I'm, this is inside. I'm not turning to him saying that because he'd be kind of freaked out. Inside, I'm going, hey, wait a minute. I'm about to encourage him with a passage where Paul is saying, man, it's hard. Life is hard, and sin is just always there, and it's always fighting back. And then it says, I don't have the desire to do, I, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then I'm going, wait a minute, we're robo-worshippers. That doesn't fit. I mean, all that's going on in my head. But I continue. I continue reading. For I do not do the good thing I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That passage, I want to tell you right now, has ministered to me for a long time, but for all the wrong reasons. That passage, if you just take it out of context, written by Paul, full of eyes, Sounds like a testimony. He sounds like he's talking about this is what life is like for me. As I follow Christ, there's a war inside my body and I'm losing and 
but then I'm winning, maybe. It is a sad, sad passage. I found, actually, a quote from a commentator, from an old preacher. I don't know who this old preacher was, and neither did the commentator. But I love the way he put it about this passage. Listen to what he said. He said, this passage is the most terrible tragedy in all literature. Ancient or modern, sacred or profane. Set beside the seventh of Romans, all your so-called great tragedies, they are so much sound and fury signifying next to nothing. The seventh of Romans should always be printed in letters of blood. Here are the passions. Here are the terror and pity. Here heaven and hell meet for they, their last grapple together for their everlasting possession of that immortal soul till you have tragedy indeed, beside which there is no other tragedy. If you read that passage, it is really a sad, heartbreaking passage. But it's one that here's why I felt comfort in it. Because I'm thinking Paul is an apostle. Paul loves Jesus. And he, yet he's got this war going on. He's got this place where he continues to fail. Or this, this, this image of sin. Or this reality of sin in his life. And he's not been freed from it yet. And, he's, and, and I found encouragement in that. If Paul can be there, then so could I. And that's what I was encouraging my buddy with. But the clue was that passage in there. I want to obey, but I'm not able to. And I'm going, ah. Uh, uh, that doesn't fit with what we heard Sunday. It doesn't fit with the realities of the new covenant. Now here's what's interesting. Our early church fathers believed that that passage, that 7, 13 through 25 passage that I just read, was the testimony of an unbeliever, like pre-conversion. Now, our early reformers, not all of them, but a lot of our early reformers believed this to be a converted person, a Christian confessing about the difficulties and realities of this war of the flesh within your body where it seems like flesh is winning here and sin is winning there. It's interesting, a lot of the reformers, but not all of them, believed this to be the life of a Christian. Now I have to tell you, after reading this passage with a new set of eyes that were equipped the week prior with the beauties and wonders of the new covenant, I realized that's not what's taking place there at all. It scratched an itch for me for all the wrong reasons. It ministered to me for all the wrong reasons. If you need a passage to minister to you, if you have ongoing sin in your life, you love Jesus, yet that sin is still there, there are places to go, but this isn't it. 1 John chapters 1 and 2 would be a good place to go. If you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And not if you sin, but when you sin, there's a mediator that will go to bat for you. 1 John chapters 1 and 2 would be a good place to go. Another good place to go would be 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. There's no doubt that Paul felt that way. Okay? There's a testimony. But in context here, in the context of chapter 7 of Romans, he's been contrasting old covenant and new, law and grace. And law and the work of Christ specifically, not just law and grace, because there's grace in the Old Covenant as well. And there's grace in even having the law. 
That's a misnomer. He's been contrasting two, these two things, and it would be just sort of weird for Paul to just bust out in this personal testimony. Yeah, yeah, you know, I know all this is all true, but here's my personal testimony. You know, I got sin in my life and I hadn't really been liberated from it. Wretched man that I am. When you read this passage with the eyes that were equipped from last week, you realize that this passage is saying something altogether different. I found some really strong commentators, one of which is a guy named Doug Moo, which is probably one of the sharpest commentators I know of. He deals with the different viewpoints. He deals with our, our reformers, and Doug Moo is reformed, by the way. He deals with our early reformers. He deals with the early church fathers and how they all viewed this passage differently. You're going you're gonna to deal with this passage very differently if you view this passage as the testimony of a Christian. The early reformed church, in fact became so comfortable with this sort of language as part of the life of a Christian that they actually adopted something, or they, they called, people called, dead orthodoxy. Where people are just like, oh man, woe is me. Life is just down, life is bad. And then the pietist movement came from that, where people going, hey, pietist movement said, wait a second, we actually can obey? And then a whole new reformed movement went a different direction. Martin Luther was one that really loved this passage. He gave this passage more theological significance as the life of a Christian than anybody else. He believed, he saw in these verses the classic statement of his view of the believer as at the same time a justified person and a sinner. If you believe that, you're going to read that passage and say, well, this is just a lot for the sinner. It's tragic, but come follow Christ, (laughs) if you will. But man, prior to this last week, that's the way I've viewed this passage. But now reading it in context, I'm realizing here in context, what he's saying is, this is the life of the old covenant worshiper. It would be like Pierce Morgan, who I just privately am celebrating that he's not going to have a show anymore. I have to confess that. I hope he sells Kenny shoes or something like that. Imagine Pierce Morgan interviewing our friend Jacob. Jacob, I want to talk to you and just, you know, I don't know how to, enter, how to imitate. Luke could imitate him, the British guy. Imitate this guy, you know, Pierce asking him, what's life like for you in the old covenant there as a Jew? And hearing Jacob say, well, you know what? I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do not do the thing I want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry out. And my flock is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And my shoes are getting more and more worn out. (laughs) This would be like an interview with Yacom. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not do is what I keep on doing. And in fact, where people, I would say people that have the best handle on this are now seeing this as not only the Old Testament covenant or the Old Covenant worshippers' testimony, but Paul's testimony pre-conversion. Paul was a good Jew. He'd be a great example of Jacob. You think his shoes weren't worn out with sacrifice? Homeboy was committed. He was a seriously committed Jew. And he's confessing, even in that passage, says, I love the law. 
But man, you know what? As much as I love the law, it is death for me. If you read this passage with that set of eyes, then it has a whole new meaning. When you get on over to, the, to verse 24, or, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You hear this pregnant question that reverberates throughout all the ages, and it is a sad question, but then you read the next verse and you go, Yes! Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself serve the law, law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then chapter 8 is full of some of the sweetest news in our Bible because now he's talking about new covenant worship. When you read that chapter 7 in context, man, everything changes. It's like an interview with Jacob. And then you read chapter 8, and man, it's good news. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You hear the contrast? It's like, man, I the wicked thing. I'm a wicked man. I'm a wretched man. The thing I want to do is the thing I don't do. The thing I do want to do is the thing I don't do. He's beat down, but here in chapter 8, there is therefore now, because of Christ Jesus, no condemnation for those who are in him, you could say, in the new covenant. For those who are part of the new covenant... The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, from the old covenant. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Man, the law was good. If you read the chapters in front of this, you see that Paul is saying, I love the law. But you know what it was for me? It was death for me. It could not change my heart. It told me what God expected, but it didn't change my heart and give me the ability to obey what he expected. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Man, Here was the clue for me. It's so funny. So God is so cool. I'm talking with my friend, taking him to Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. And meanwhile, what's in the back of my mind is I've got an email I want to prepare for y'all on Romans 8, 1 through 4. Commentary after commentary in my preparation for sermon last week referenced Romans 8, 1 through 4 as Paul's take of the beauties of the new covenant. And I thought, okay, that's just too much to fit into last Sunday. For those of you who were here last Sunday, you know. You're like, whoo, yeah, I'm glad you didn't do that because I wouldn't have gotten it. I actually planned to follow up with an email this week saying, let me unpack Romans 8, 1 through 4 for you because it's Paul's take on the beauties of the new covenant. And then think of the irony. It's not coincidental that I'm sitting reading chapter 7, verses 13 through 25 with a friend when moments later I'm going to write on chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. It all came together in a matter of moments. And I was beside myself. I could not believe what God had done. Man, you need to realize that as I'm standing and preaching each week, that I am a worshiper with you as well. The preacher does not have all things figured out. I am hearing things as you're hearing them. Just because I prepared the sermon doesn't mean that I'm not hearing it as well, that it's not equipping me and opening the 
the eyes of my heart to new and deeper truths. We've been eating some man food the last few weeks. Manwiches. And man, we're all like hopefully going, wow, that's awesome. And that's the way I felt this week. Listen to this from C.E.B. Cranfield. What the law could never do because our lower nature robbed it of all potency, it was the law that was weakened by the flesh. It was not the law, God didn't somehow fumble with the old covenant. It was weakened by the flesh. What the law could never do because of our lower nature robbed it of all potency, God has done by sending his own son in the form like that of our sinful nature and as a sacrifice for sin, He passed judgment against sin within that very nature so that the commandment of the law might find fulfillment in us whose conduct, no longer under the control of our lower nature, is now directed by the Spirit. We should not write a Romans 7, people of God. We may have places in our lives that we still see sin, You may very well have that place. But you are not the beat down, defeated dude of Romans chapter chapter 7. You are not. I believe with everything in me that that is not a believer. Here's some clues. In chapter 7 verse 14, this person is sold under sin. This person. If this is Paul giving testimony. Or if this is Paul giving words to the old covenant worshiper. This person is sold under sin, and yet elsewhere, Paul says the believer is set free from sin. That doesn't sound right. Also, the I here in this passage is, in verse 23, imprisoned by the law of sin, and yet the believer elsewhere, in chapter 8, verse 2, has been set free from the law of sin and death. He's not talking about a worshiper right there. He's not talking about a worshiper in the New Covenant. He's talking about a worshiper in the Old Covenant. He could also be talking about someone who's trying to just do good and earn God's favor. It could also be about a person that's outside of Christ just trying to do good. That's doomed to failure because it's fought without the power of God. That alone changes the heart. That alone breaks the power of sin. Deliverance only comes in the converting, regenerating work of God in Christ. Thanks be to God. Right? Man, chapter 8, gracious sakes alive, takes on a whole new character. You read chapter 7 and then chapter 8, and the notion of chapter 7 being a believer ought to make you go, how in the world did I ever think that? Because chapter 8 is all about victory. And it's not just victory in terms of changed status. It's victory in terms of changed capability. Man, I used to embrace changed status. I love changed status, but now I'm seeing, oh, it's more than changed status. It's changed capability. Look at chapter 8, verse 8 and 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You could say those who are under the old covenant cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's one of the beauties. One of the treasures of the new covenant is now an indwelling Spirit. Look at verse 15. Man, this one's sweet. 
I'm going to start in verse 13. I want you to really listen to this one. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This new covenant is not a spirit of slavery in this covenant. That's what slavery is what it sounded like in chapter, chapter 7. One of the best illustrations I've ever heard is from Martin Lloyd-Jones on slavery and how slavery can continue. The spirit of slavery can continue in the Christian life wrongly. Listen to what he says. And I would argue that chapter 7 sounds like a slave to me. Take the case of those poor slaves in the United States of America about 100 years ago. There they were in a condition of slavery, and then the American Civil War came, and as a result of the war, slavery was abolished in the United States. But what had actually happened? All slaves, young and old, were given their freedom, but many of the older ones who had endured long years of servitude found it very difficult to understand their new status. I would argue if you have had an itch scratched for decades with Romans chapter 7, you, like me, could have been holding on to some slavery there, to some servitude. Let me continue. They heard the announcement that slavery was abolished and that they were free, but hundreds, not to say thousands of times in their afterlives and experiences, many of them did not realize it. And when they saw their old master coming near them, they began to quake and tremble and to wonder whether they were going to be sold. But they were free. They were no longer slaves. The law had been changed. Their status and their position was entirely different. But it took them a very long time to realize it. You can still be a slave experimentally, even when you are no longer a slave legally. You can be a slave in your feelings when actually in respect to your position, you have been emancipated completely. So it is with the Christian. Man, that's the good news of chapter 8. That's the good news of the new covenant. You are no longer slaves. Man, what crazy good news. This chapter is full of that kind of good news. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Look at chapter 35. Tribulation, distress, or verse 35. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That sounds like robo-worshipper to me. That sounds like new covenant worshiper. We are more than conquerors. We are not living over there in chapter 7 saying, Man, I'm still watching porn. I love Jesus, but I can't figure out why I can't quit that. Don't use Romans 7 as an excuse for you to continue in some wretched sin that's destroying you and your family. If you're walking in the new covenant, you have the goods to obey. You have the ability to obey. If you're looking at your life saying, man, these things have not found purchase yet, don't land in chapter 7. Don't land in chapter 7 and say, man, I want to do the right thing, but I don't have the ability to do the right thing. You need to read the rest of your Bible. According to chapter 8, you do. 
According to Hebrews 8, you do. According to Jeremiah 31, you do. You have the goods. Gracious sakes alive, we could walk around living like a bunch of slaves that have been emancipated. Man, our job, our encouragement to each other ought to be reminding each other, hey dudes, we're free. Don't bow down to him anymore. Don't bow down to that sin anymore. You're free. Man, that's the good news of the new covenant. Gracious. Isn't that worth a second look? Did you see that? Golly. This is such good news, man. This is worth stopping and considering. And I'm going to tell you what, when you stop and consider it and you're blown away and you're like, oh, what a wonderful good news. What wonderful truths come in this new covenant. When you do that, when you have that feeling, if you have that feeling within you right now and you talk about it over a meal and you think on it during the week, there's a word for what you're doing right there. It's called worship. He wants us to enjoy it. (laughs) That's what it means. That's the joy that comes in the Christian life. It's not having the wind to your back all the time. Remember, he's talking to a bunch of people that are going through some terrible stuff. This is the joy. Wow. This is the peace that passes understanding that comes from these sort of truths, potent truths. What a wonderful age we live in. John chapter 8, I'll never forget a passage as I preached through there, a passage that indicated that Abraham longed for our day. He longed to see our day. It made me think of 1 Peter. Listen to this passage. Turn, turn here. This is where we'll end this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1. Abraham longed for our day. This is where we'll close. I want you to really pay attention to this passage. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, okay, let's, let's connect this covenant that we're walking in, this story, this gospel that we're walking in, this amazing relationship that we have, this access that we have where he's known from the least and the greatest. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. I hope you're thinking right now of who that... I mean, you have one guy that comes to mind as a prophet that would have been doing that. Jeremiah. <laughs> he did it today. Jeremiah 31. He was prophesying about this very thing that Peter now is writing about. Knucklehead, bonehead Peter. Fisherman Peter. The comedy of the whole thing is got to strike you. It's wonderful. Peter is writing about... Jeremiah's prophecy, saying those prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You could say they're trying to figure out when and where is this new covenant going to actually show up. When's it going to break in? When's it going to play out? It was revealed to them as they're writing, as they're 
prophesying and doing what prophets do. As Jeremiah is writing chapter 31 of, of Jeremiah, as he's writing chapter 7 where he's saying how they're doing in their covenant, like not good. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Like, oh man, Abraham longed to see our day. The prophets, like Jeremiah, longed to see our day. Angels long to look into and enjoy and walk in the things that we have access to in this new covenant. Wow. That gives me goosebumps. Think about that. What a wonderful time we're in. What a wonderful time. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for these rich truths. And not just for the truths, but the fact that these truths play out. It's not just things that are true that we can just think about, but they're true things that actually show up in our den, in our marriage, in our medical report, in our mirror, in our conversations. I'm so thankful that all these things are so life-altering, life-giving, perspective-giving, joy-bringing in every situation. I cannot imagine life without them. What a wonderful, wonderful reality. What a wonderful story that you have rescued us and brought us into. God, we are thankful. We marvel together today. We marvel together and enjoy our high priest and enjoy that he mediates a new and different covenant. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to have our Lord's Supper now. We'll go ahead and distribute the elements, and I'll have a passage to share with you as we take our supper. Prophets searched for when this was going to happen, wondering when this new covenant was going to break in. Here's where it broke in. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body. This is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. They wondered when it was going to show up. That's where it showed up. Every week when we take the supper, we enjoy this. We remember this. We celebrate this new covenant that we walk in. Let's take and eat. Let me encourage you before we take the cup. If you heard some of these comments, you know, like for example, a, you know, pornography or some sin, pervasive sin, it could be uh, marital struggles, it could be um, 
some sort of addiction. It could be, uh, you know, some sort of sin issue that you have really have not been, feel like you've not been freed from or you've not seen movement and progress in. I want you to enjoy today that you do have victory over that. It may not have shown up yet. You could be living like that slave that's emancipated but still living, bowing down to his master. But you need to know that through this new covenant, that in Christ... There is therefore now no more condemnation for you. And you don't have to continue in that. He may not let you get away with finding freedom from it by yourself. In fact, he probably won't. You're probably going to have to reach out to some folks. You're probably going to have to bring others in on this. A lot of this language here in Romans chapter 8 that's always read so individually is written to a church and written to a people It's not about individual people as much as it is about a church family. And church family should be the most authentic, the place where we are most authentic and the most vulnerable, when ironically it's the place where we oftentimes are least. But it's when you're vulnerable, when you're available, when you're open to each other, and when you're who you really are with each other. Wrinkle, spot, stain, everything. That you find that two are better than one and you can walk in that victory that we have, that we're enjoying this morning. If you're not experiencing that, but you want that, man, I encourage you to follow through on that. The first step would be in worship to enjoy that he's given you victory over. Let's take and drink. Let's continue in song. Songs have a trajectory in two directions. One is Godward. We're saying back to God, the blood of Jesus has power. Thank you. I mean, it, it is very much worship in in that direction it's also worship when we're reminding each other hey there's power power wonder working power we're reminding each other of what we're walking in i hope that was that for i hope this morning was that for you a good reminder a good encouragement maybe it was opening your eyes to the marvel of the new covenant that we walk in where you see yourself as very different from Jacob. very different a wonderful privileged time unspeakable privileges that we swim in, blessings that we, that we swim in. I hope you saw that this morning. I hope that in some ways some of the questions were sort of personal where you had the chance to kind of think, huh, well, am I uncomfortable with a God that saves me through and through? Do I want more agency? You know, do I want more say-so in this whole thing? Well, let's talk about that. We could talk about agency and talk about how that's gone for you, apart from Christ. We can talk about those sorts of things. I want to encourage you. Man, talk with your small group shepherds. Talk as families. Talk with deacons. Talk with elders. This, this is a conversation, and it needs to continue between Sundays. When it does, man, it finds a home, and it finds a place that you're like, okay, now, it's, now I can use it. I can grab it. I can wield it when I need it. I didn't know I needed it there, and I didn't even know I had it, but I've massaged it, and now I can wield it, and I'm thankful. So I hope that was a that for you this morning. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you with a um, a doxology. Let me say too, just briefly, if you're here for the first of a few times, all right, maybe you've been here a a good good bit and you're like, man, a lot of stuff that that y'all talk about is just completely novel for me. I mean, stuff I've never heard or I've never really, like you're mentioning stories or mentioning things. I try every time I do that to sort of give a seconds long context 
but there may be things I miss, and you may be like, man, I kind of got lost there. There are two things, two encouragements. One is it's online. There are folks that have been here for years that will still listen to sermons more than once because it might take more than once for it really to find a home. The other thing is when you come to faith in Christ or you walk with a church that is dining on God's word deeply, I think, each week, it's almost like you're learning a new language. You have to learn new words that are parking spaces for new thoughts, thoughts you've never thought about before. So be okay with the new language. If it was just the common language of stuff you were familiar with every single day, then likely you wouldn't be hearing, hearing anything that was, was illuminating and revelate, revelatory for you. So be okay with new words and be okay with something that's unfamiliar and embrace them, in fact. Be okay with the new language and take, be, be patient with yourself. People that have been Christians for a long time need to hear these things over and over and over and over again. And God's word is so repetitive that we need to be thankful that God knows us. We all need it. So you'll hear it again. That's, that's my assurance. Okay, here's our uh, benediction or doxology for the morning. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling. <laughs> Isn't that good? And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 